0: This is Creative Mornings, a new podcast showcasing the global creative community. This episode is brought to you by MailChimp. MailChimp helps businesses grow. If you're just getting started or you're already building a growing business, MailChimp makes it easy to connect with your customers and sell more stuff. It's totally free to get started, no expiring trial and no credit card required. For more sophisticated marketers, pro features like multivariate testing offer the same power you'd expect in an enterprise marketing platform in an intuitive, easy-to-use interface. Learn more at MailChimp.com. One, two, three. <laughs> hey, everybody, welcome to the Creative Mornings Podcast. This is Matt. I am still here, and I'm still hosting the show. For those of you who joined us last season, you know we took a bit of a winter break, so welcome back and thank you very much. We were all blown away with how well Season 1 was received, and you are the reason why Season 2 is a thing now. If you're new to the show, hello and welcome, and frankly, I'm jealous of your position because who wouldn't want 12 episodes of a podcast to catch up on? So please go back and check us out for Season 1. But now, we're about to kick off this season in a big way with a talk given by Seth Godin in May of 2013 at Creative Mornings New York City. Seth is the author of almost 20 bestsellers. And for those of you who, like me, scroll through the phone every morning before getting out of bed, as anti-Seth Godin as that may be, his email newsletter and blog are an inspiring way to cut through the usual morning garbage on the internet. But before we go there, I want to explain one little change that you might notice this time around. Last season, before the lectures, we often spoke with the Creative Mornings chapter host from the city where the talk was given. If not the host, then someone close to the speaker who could offer us a little insight into who we were about to hear from. But this time around, whenever we can, we're going straight to the source, the speakers themselves. Consider it a bit of bonus content. Now, we can't guarantee that schedules will always align with our podcast timeline, so there will be a handful of episodes where we chat with the chapter hosts. However, I am thrilled to say, to kick this season off, Seth Godin was ready and willing to chat. And if you don't know who he is, I asked Seth to give us a little bit of a background.
1: My uh, experience as someone who uses design, at least professionally, uh, started when I was 26 and I became a book packager. And I did 120 books in the course of uh, 10 years, a dozen books a year, a book a month. Uh, My team grew to be as big as 12 people, but often it was just me. And the idea was you could come up with an idea for a book and a publisher would then sell you to build it. So I built the Information Please Business Almanac, the Information Please Women's Almanac. I worked on the Celebrity Almanac. I did the Encyclopedia of Fictional People, The Greatest People Who Never Lived, Uh, The Smiley Dictionary, uh, Novels for Teenagers, and sometimes I design the inside. Sometimes I just put together ideas. Sometimes I wrote the whole thing. Um, and I loved this act of inventing things and figuring out how to use graphic design to impact people. Uh, I, then in 1999, I started writing, quote, real books, unquote, which were uh, by me as an author. And I've written 18 bestsellers since then. But mostly I think of myself as someone who does projects. And sometimes they are websites and sometimes there are live conferences. Um, Sometimes they involve hundreds of people. Sometimes it's just me. I find the freedom that we have right now to be an impresario and organize and cause and create and curate is like never before in history. And it seems a shame to waste.
0: it. Okay, so you started by saying your experience as someone who uses design. But when did design enter the picture?
1: Um... Well, when I was at Spinnaker, my only job, when I was uh, 21 and 22...
0: I'll just interrupt with a quick note here. Spinnaker was a software company in the 1980s that specialized in educational software.
1: I was the brand manager for a line of science fiction adventure games. We worked with Ray Bradbury and Arthur C. Clarke and some other giants. And I was commuting back and forth to business school in California to Boston, and after... Three months of this, my boss, after a red eye, president of the company, came into my office and said, "Uh, we're closing down your project. We can't take the risk. It's a small company. You'll have to find something else to do here. And I had uh, one of the very first Macintoshes. Guy Kawasaki actually set me up as a beta tester in 1983. Uh, And so I went into my office and instead of putting my head on the desk and crying, I fired up Ready, Set, Go, which was the first desktop publishing for the Mac. And I redesigned and rebuilt all five product covers and all the marketing materials in one 12-hour sprint. And there weren't very many people desktop publishing in those days, and I did it and saved my career with it. And ever since then, the whole idea that I didn't need to know what a lith was or have any artistic talent whatsoever, but I could still make cool stuff, I got hooked up.
0: I'm sitting here listening to Seth Godin speak, and I'm fascinated because I realize I'm on the phone with one of the trailblazers of the DIY trend. He knew he had the tools at his fingertips, and he made it work to save his career. In the early 1980s. Today, this is obviously a major trend, and we have these tools at our fingertips more than ever. And discussing that with Seth, he hits me with one of his many, many quotable phrases.
1: Skill and talent are different things, and skill is acquirable. Uh, I believe that there are certain talents, not very many. I think dunking a basketball is, at some level, a a talent. I will never be able to do that. But so many things that we think of as talents are actually skills. And it's fascinating to find out what happens if we put the effort in to turn it into a skill.
0: I also have a pretty important question that I think might be on the minds of a lot of our listeners. Do you still have that Mac from the 80s? It belonged to the company.
1: so. No, I don't. I still have some of the software on my, this is probably the 40th Mac I've owned. And there's definitely software on this Mac that does not run and definitely software I'm not going to delete.
0: Seth met Creative Mornings founder, Tina Roth-Eisenberg, in the early days of Creative Mornings. And as is the case so often with Tina and her little organization, he was very impressed.
1: You know, I Tina had an automatic yes for me. She said, would you do this? I said, yes. And I said, what is it? <laughs> um, you know, I'm a professional speaker. I do it for a living. So it's not often that I go and do something like creative mornings. And I decided it would be thrilling and scary to bring all new material. Sometimes when you give a speech, you're giving it to a group of people who are there for something else and you are the next thing. Uh, but this was a group of people who are all aligned in their interest and their goals, And at least some of them came because they knew I was gonna be there. Uh, And so that combination made it energizing for me as a speaker and watching people's eyes light up is one of the reasons I do this work.
0: So let's get to it then. And like I said, there's more from this phone conversation after the lecture, but now here's Seth Godin from Creative Mornings New York City in May of 2013 as part of a series on the theme, Backwards. Enjoy. A,
1: B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, O, E, T, U, R, S, C, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z. Great, we can stop here. <laughs> verses, there are verses of it. So here's the thing. The topic today is backwards. I didn't make up the topic, but that's the topic. How come the alphabet's in that order? Is it because of that song? Right? You all... I think you see, it's early. You know, it could be ZYX, WVU, TSR, QPO, MNL. No, that seems wrong. And a lot of people can't even do that. I started teaching my kids how to do that when they were three months old, so they would just feel a little out of balance when they got And most of what I want to do today is take your questions, because that's the best part for me selfishly. But there's a few things I want to put on the table about backwards. And about the way people who have the mad skills you guys have are approaching your work. I don't need to talk to you about how to see. I don't need to talk to you about the importance of beauty. I don't need to talk to you. I can't teach you anything about uh, the tactics and mechanics of the work that you do. But I can talk a little bit about the leverage that's available to you. And how you might see the world differently as you want to bring that work to the world. The first thing that we've got backwards is this. Many people believe that great designers get great clients. It's not true. It's the other way around. So that Chip Kidd, great guy, a friend of mine, and a super talented book cover designer, would not be known to anyone if he wasn't working at the place where he's working. Myra Kalman, who has spoken here, and has really changed the way people think about illustration, would be unknown and would never have been able to do the work she did if she didn't have the client she had. And Shepard Ferry, his client is him, and he's gone to jail 30 times, <laughs> to jail, with kids, 30 times for the privilege of having himself as a client. So the question I would ask you is, How much of your day is spent, and this is true even if you have a day job because bosses are also clients. How much of your day is spent working to get better clients versus pleasing the clients you've already got? And is pleasing the clients you've already got the best way to get better clients? Is a better client somebody who merely pays you more or are you selling your soul and selling out your career by taking someone today who's going to put you in the wrong box versus choosing your own path to find the client who is capable of giving you the platform that you deserve. Which leads to the second thing that's upside down, which is that patience is for the impatient, that in fact, When you're getting started and your in-laws are making faces at you and you're not sure if you're going to be able to pay the rent and you don't know why you're living in Brooklyn to begin with and you're going to have to move back to Florida, it's easy (laughs) to say, you know what, I need to go faster to pick up these scraps and pick up these scraps. And sometimes what that does is it gives you the foot up to get to the next level, but sometimes what that does is it just makes you a scrap collector. And that one of the things that we see when we look at the work of people who have put really big ideas into the world, who have built online platforms, right, is that they got there by being patiently impatient or impatiently patient, whichever way you want to juxtapose it. That if you look around at the blogs you read or the the people you respect online or the organizations you want to work with, the myth of the overnight success is just that, a myth. That, you know, the much vaunted Twitter was a failure, a complete failure for two years. Nobody used it. And if they took the mindset of, well, if it doesn't work in two weeks, we've got to go do something else, you never would have heard of it. Okay, and then the biggest one is this principle of leading up. That one of the things that I hear the most after I give a talk or someone reads one of my books is, that's great, but my boss won't let me. I'd love to do something like that, but my boss won't let me. Well, of course she won't, because what you're saying to her is, I want to do something really cool and really neat, and if it works, I'll get the credit, but if it doesn't, you'll get the blame because you said it was okay. Who would take that deal? (laughs) And that in fact, what we see is that the people who have jobs or who have clients who are making a dent in the universe are doing it by leading the people who are ostensibly in charge to make better decisions. Leading those people to have better taste. Leading those people to have the guts to do the work that they're capable of doing. And so, no, you are not in charge. But in fact, nobody is in charge, if you want to look at it that way, right? That even the President of the United States can blame the people who won't vote for his bills in the Senate or the House. No one is ostensibly in charge. But it's so easy for us to say, my boss won't let me, when what we're really saying is, no one gave me an effective place to hide. That we all grew up in an industrial world, in an industrial economy, a place where we were trained from the time we were three to do what we were told. That they invented public school the industrialists of the world, because they needed more workers. And what they needed from workers are people who are willing to sit still for 10 hours, use a number two pencil, and follow instructions. That's what we were indoctrinated to do. That's how you got an A in third grade, and that's how you got into a famous college. right? And so it's deep within us to want to do that and to let the boss tell us what to do. But we just changed all the rules, and that's not the option anymore. So I have bullet points here. The first one is, Do it on purpose. Figure out on purpose every day when you go to do your work, how am I leading up? How am I doing the work and laying the tracks to get my clients to be better clients, to find better clients, to get my boss to be a better boss, and if my boss is unable to become a better boss, to leave and go find a better boss. On purpose, that's your job. Number two, tell stories. That resonate with those in charge you cannot prove anything to get the people you work for to do something but you can tell them a story that gets under their skin that resonates that they remember number three demand responsibility but don't worry at all about authority that in the old system in the top-down industrial pyramid you're not allowed to tell anyone what to do unless you have the authority from the person above you. But in the bottom-up world we live in now, people who take responsibility are often given responsibility. It's okay, it's my fault. I'll take the responsibility for this. But if you are willing to let other people pretend to have authority, that's fine. Because we don't need no stinking badges anymore. That what we have is the ability to let our work speak for itself. The fourth one, reflect credit, but embrace blame. This goes back to what I just said. So if there's something wrong, you own that. But if someone, particularly a boss or a client, wants to take credit, that's fabulous. And the reason it's fabulous is they will come back to you for more of that, because they have a choice about who to work with, and they're eager to work with people who make them look good. So how do you deal with this environment where the boss won't let you? The answer is do small things, things that won't get you fired without asking. And if they work, go to your boss, your client, and let them take full credit for what you did. And if they don't work, go to your boss and your client, tell them what you learned, and take responsibility. Because what happens when you start down that cycle is you get to do it again. And once you've done it four times or six times or eight times, and the boss and the client is taking credit four times or six times or eight times for a small thing you did in the world, they're going to come back to you and say, let's do that small thing again. And maybe we can do it even bigger together and I'll take the credit and you'll say fine because you're getting to do the work and it's the work that you're after, not the credit. And then look around this room. How is it that you all came together this morning, not yesterday, not tomorrow? Because Tina and her crew convened and that all of you have convening power. That we're not in the industrial economy anymore, we're in the connection economy and connection creates value. Um, as it's been written before and his name just flew out of my head and I apologize to him Matt Ridley as Matt Ridley has written there isn't a person on earth who knows how to make a computer mouse not one person you need a metallurgist and a plastics person and someone who does supply chain and somebody else who knows how to do the finance and everything else if we couldn't come together in a team we couldn't make a mouse we couldn't make almost anything we count on in our world who is doing the convening Who is sitting there saying, I'm going to organize a group, five people, 50 people, 500 people, to come together, to connect with each other, to create value. No one is stopping you from doing that, except the little voice in your head that says, it's not your turn and you're not supposed to. That what we've got now is all these tools and what we're using them for is to play Angry Birds, which is ridiculous. They're connection machines. Right, And connection machines work best when we are connecting with people. And then the last one, the last resort, is if they don't get it, go somewhere that does. You don't get tomorrow over again. You don't get next week over again. One shot. So if you're working with people who are truly stuck, who are truly stuck in a way that they cannot get out of it, you need to go find someone who gets it. One of the lions and giants of our industry, GM O'Connell, is here. And GM invented the first digital ad agency. Right? Nobody would be here if people like him hadn't done stuff like that in the 90s. And the secret, and you can ask him this, is he only had the right clients at the beginning. That if he was busy calling on Exxon, 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 and Exxon didn't get the joke, then they're dead to him. Go call on somebody else. Because if you want to make change, make it for people who deserve it but don't give up too soon because maybe it's your fault that they don't get the joke. So Michael Schrag wrote a, a great short piece last year. And what it said was, the real question you need to ask is, how do you want your customers to change? What change are you trying to make in the people you work with? And the big insight here, and I've got to talk about Apple because I've been gone 15 minutes and haven't talked about Apple. The big insight is this. The change Apple wants to make is it wants to turn its customers into people with good taste. And if you look at Apple through that lens, a whole bunch of things make sense. Because if people start having better taste about the way their devices work and about the way they look and about what they make, they're more likely to buy more stuff that Apple makes because people with good taste want to touch stuff like that. So that was the change they were trying to make in the world. So when you think about what change you're trying to make in your clients, in their customers, in your boss, and you realize that your work can make that change happen, you're more likely to do it on purpose. So then, back to what your job is. I think the art you make, the beauty you make, the design you do, is a hobby. What you get paid to do is go to meetings and ship stuff on time. What you get paid to do is the hard work of doing it on demand. So if you're busy complaining because they won't let you do that thing you want to do, well, the stuff you want to do is your hobby. The stuff we're paying you for is the difficult emotional labor of looking people in the eye and telling them the truth. And telling them the truth in a way that makes them change. Change in a way that creates more beauty. Change in a way that creates more difference. It's more important you do work that's important than you do work that's pretty. And we're too hung up in this industrial polished world on saying, isn't that pretty? I got rid of that little burr, that little distraction. But it's not important, right? That the wabi-sabi of the item can stay. It's okay. What's important is, did it make a change happen? Did it make someone cry? Did it save a life? Did it connect two people in a way that they wouldn't have been connected? And so now that I've stirred up enough dust, we get to the heart of it, which is this. Everyone in this room owns a media company. 15 years ago, no one in this room owned a media company. And now all of you do. And that means you don't need the New Yorker to say yes. And you don't need CBS to say yes. And you don't even need the Huffington Post to say yes. That everybody owns a media company if you want to. If you want to put on an event and have 500 people come, You can. If you want to write something online and have a million people read it, you can. If you want to be in the connection business, you can. And this is really bad news for people who are insisting on being picked because you're not gonna get picked. Dick Clark has passed away. He's not gonna call and put you on American Bandstand. (laughs) It's over. And it's being replaced by the awesome, scary responsibility of picking yourself of saying, I am my own client. And this is the best work I could get the person who does the work for me to do. Here it is. I made this. What do you think? And you'll put that in front of people. And some people will say, I don't get it. And you may have to say, with guts, then it's not for you. And go over here and say, here, I made this. Because your job isn't to make something for everyone. There is no longer anything for everyone, anything. The most popular soft drink in America is other. The most popular beer in America is none of the above. Go down the list of every single thing where we used to have domination, we don't anymore. That other is what's going on. That we're getting more and more into silos. That there's all these weird things outside the normal distribution. And so if you're saying, what I need to do to be successful and what I need to do to be happy is by be picked by a mass market marketer who has excellent taste and will do what I say and will bring my product, which is gonna be the one I love, and everyone is going to embrace it and say I did a good job and there will be no criticism, you will fail and be unhappy. But if you say, you know what, there's just a few people, a few people that I can imagine who I could put something in front of that would change them enough and connect them enough that they would talk about it, then the word would spread. And no, everyone's not going to love your work. But you don't need everyone. Think about who your heroes are in the world you work in. None of those heroes are known by the typical man on the street. None of them. That the people who are doing work that matters aren't doing work that's popular. They're just doing work that changes some people. So uh, before we go to questions, I first want to read you a quote from Leonard Bernstein. He said, I'm no longer sure what the question is, but I do know the answer. And the answer is yes. And what that means in your situation, in our situation, in the world we work in right now, is if you are looking for people to say no to you, so you have an excuse, you are spending your time doing the wrong thing. And that it has never been easier. And I think in the future, it's going to be harder than it is today. I think this is the golden age of yes. It has never been easier for you to figure out who your audience is, who you're going to change, and what work you're going to do that's going to matter. In 1927, there was a conference of physicists in Solvay, which is a city in Europe. And in the photo of it, Albert Einstein is there, Marie Curie is there. There's 17 winners of the Nobel Prize in physics. And the thing that's extraordinary is most of those people won the Nobel Prize after 1927. That the person who organized the conference didn't just go down the list of Nobel Prize winners. What he did was he created a platform and an expectation. And when you went to that conference, you looked around and you said, wow, I need to raise my bar. Then you looked around and you said, there is potential here, because some of these people aren't even as smart as me. And if I push myself even harder, there's a lot of open territory ahead. This is a Solvay conference right here, right now. right. That if you look around, This isn't about what's in your DNA. This isn't about who's genetically predisposed to do great work. That's a myth. What it's about is who's expecting to do it, and who's going to do it with intention, and who's going to do it in a way that we remember and that causes a connection. My friend Shaleen has this great quote, and I'll share it with you as I wrap up before our questions, which is this. I have no doubt that the people in this room are going to succeed. The question is... Are you going to matter? I hope you will. Thank you.
0: Seth was very generous with his time on this day, and he took a lot of audience questions. We'll get to those in a second, as well as the rest of our phone conversation. But first, we've got to take care of a little business. And today's episode is also made possible by Hover, domains made simple. I spoke to a Hover user named Kai in Melbourne. Or is it Melbourne? Yeah, I think most Australians and most British people say Melbourne. Kai is a former web designer and now the sole editor, publisher, and designer of Offscreen Magazine. I don't really use Hover as much because it's just a service that I, you know, pay my month to and then they keep my domain. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) But seriously, that's how they like it. Hover knows that domain names are a utility and people want to spend as little time as possible thinking about them. Well, I remember when I transferred my domain to Hover... Uh, I got an email from a support agent and then, you know, I said, you know, this is what I want to do. Can you please just get it done? And I don't really want to log into the account 15 times to do anything, you know, they just did it. It took me like two emails or so to transfer everything over. I think I logged into the account once um, ever since, you know, to have things and, and apps and services that are very efficient allows me to just, you know, be a one man show, a one man band. And that's how it should be. To get started on your big idea. Head over to Hover.com and use the promo code CREATIVE to get 10% off your first purchase. Hover. Domains made simple. Now let's get back to the Q&A with Seth Godin.
1: So, so the question is, there's all this information. There's so many tweets to follow and people on Facebook and blogs to read and everything else. How do you keep up and how do you filter it? Here's the thing. You, when you talk about the people with the mad skills that you admire who built stuff that matters... You rarely say, she did it because she was so incredibly informed. She did it because she was so incredibly in sync with all the stuff that had been posted yesterday. In fact, that's never true. That we do that to distract ourselves from the things we fear. And what we fear is being criticized, being called out as a fraud, being identified as a poser, being called out as someone who had no right to do the work that they just did. So we say, well, before I do more of that, let me just check to see if someone's already done this idea. Let me just check to see what the output of this is. And the the one that drives me absolutely crazy is let me see who's live tweeting that event that I'm not at so I can read these very tiny little pithy things that mean nothing and waste half an hour, right? (laughs) Anyone who's reading that stuff is hiding. They don't need the information. The information that's coming in is merely keeping them from doing scary work. And so I think that it's entirely appropriate to go on a radical information diet, to turn it off for a day, a week, a month, and force yourself to do something that might get you fired, might get you run out of town, might get you embarrassed. Because it's only when you do that work that you create this vulnerability for yourself. That when you do that work, you're saying to your audience, here, I made this, what do you think? And you don't have to give them a knife and, and let them you know, hurt you. But you do have to be able to say, I made this. And all the information in the world isn't helping you make more stuff. You have enough, you should stop. Sure, so the question is, what, what do I mean when I'm talking about a story? Now, I don't mean once upon a time kind of stories. Stories work when they resonate with stuff we already believe. So if I told you a folk story from Uganda it probably wouldn't resonate with you because you didn't grow up with the memes and the ideas that are related to what's in the story. Whereas if I tell you the story, uh, you have kids in school, and I say uh, a lamp started on fire because of PCBs, 12 kids are in the hospital, instantly you leap into action. There's no analysis of the statistical risk of given how many light bulbs there are and how many kids have ever gone to the hospital that this is some urgent problem, but if you have a kid particularly in a school like that one, you're going to freak. Because that story, it's not facts that matter to you. It's the resonance of imagination and where could this lead. So if we think about the stories that worked at Dell Computer eight years ago and the stories that worked at Apple Computer eight years ago, totally different. That you couldn't go to someone at Dell and say, we want to do a device that no one ever done before, and it's insanely great, and we can't be sure it's going to work, but it's going to involve new manufacturing techniques, And they throw you out. Whereas if you told exactly the same story to a client at Apple, you'd get ushered into the, the nice room, where they'd want to hear more of it, right? <laughs> and the reason is because they were already carrying around a bias. And so when we think about all the things that succeed around us, so there's you know, a restaurant in Midtown called Michael's where all the big publishing hoo-hahs eat lunch, Well, the story of Michael's isn't quick in and out, low calorie, or a good value, right? The story of Michael is, well, you know, Barry Diller will be at this table and some other person will be at this table. and You'll be right between them and they'll see you. And then one day, because they saw you at lunch, they'll call you and ask you to do a big fancy project. Now, they don't use those words, but clearly, that's the way they organize the building, right? And so when you think about how great designers build their reputation. Some of it is they're really good with a mouse or a pen. But a lot of it is they are building and living a story in everything that they do. And that's what they're getting paid for. They're not getting paid to do the stuff they love, which is the drawing and the mousing. That's where we get hung up. We get hung up in thinking that that's our job. It's not. Our job is getting our work in the world, getting our work to work. So how do you determine which stuff is going to matter? And this goes back to learning how to see. right? That learning how to see, figuring out where the opportunities are, that's what design really is. That it's not craftsmanship. It's seeing the gap and visualizing in advance what is going to work. So I've been doing marketing for a really long time. And I went out to India to do work with with Acumen. And I was helping a a nonprofit there that sells um, glasses to people who need reading glasses. And they'd been doing it for a couple of years, and it had been struggling. And I'm sitting there, and it's a, I've got jet lag, and it's 100 degrees. And I won't go into all the details of the story, but it took me about a minute to see something that other people hadn't seen. And by changing that thing, a whole bunch of good things came from it. Well, I couldn't have done that the first week, year, or decade I was in marketing, because I didn't know how to see. But when I was there, I had done it enough times and interacted with enough people that I saw what was missing. So part of the challenge here is you can't be disconnected from the output of your work. That you need to figure out, how did someone use that last thing I made? And what did you learn from what worked and what didn't? And how can you do it again? So if you talk about the great guys at Warby Parker and their business is going great, right? They don't have words for why the glasses they're selling work better than different, but they can see, they understand. And part of the reason they understand is they've been in that business for a long time. And when they have their little showroom, they see who people come in, they see which glasses they touch, they see what they say. Immersing yourself in those interactions teaches you how to see. But the minute it stops and it turns into just flagellating yourself reading the comments on a tweet you posted, you need to stop. Because now you're, you're hiding, you're not learning anymore. And that's why there is no manual for this, is that I can't tell you where that line is. I can tell you that if you're busy reading the comments, if you're busy spending your days retweeting and, you know, sort of social grooming, you're probably not learning how to see in a way that's going to lead to work that matters.
0: The next question from the audience was essentially, how do you define your genre?
1: There is a bookstore, I have a picture on my computer, that, you know, they had romance, mysteries, business history. And then they had a section called famous authors. That's what it said. (laughs) Famous authors. And that made me really sad that there are people who go to the bookstore and say, I'm only willing to look at books from famous authors. (laughs) The word genre is really important. It sounds a little bit like generic, but it means that we are pre-processing choice selection for people. That people can't possibly there's gonna be a million books published in 2013. People can't possibly consider a million books. But they can say I like this genre of stuff. Now, you know, I, I got into the book business twenty-eight years ago when in a good week eighteen business books got published. Right now it might be eighteen every couple hours. One of the things that I helped pioneer, I certainly wasn't the only one, Tom Peters was way before me, is the idea of books where we talk about business and society and life all in a circle in a way that are fun to read. And that doesn't have a name, the whole genre has shifted. You really can't get away with writing a book like they used to write in 1970 in this category. So it evolved. One of the things that I think we're seeing, though, and and Malcolm is far better at this than I am, is if you write something that people need to refer to in order to express an idea, it will spread. So after the tipping point came out, what would happen is people would go to a meeting, and they'd say, I think our business is coming near a tipping point. And other people would say, what does that mean? Because they hadn't encountered the book yet. And so the same thing happened uh, with Purple Cow, and the same thing happened with Idea Viruses, and other phrases or concepts. right? So many, how many of you have read Chris Anderson's The Long Tail? Raise your hand. How many of you know what The Long Tail is? Interesting. right? So you don't have to read the book to get the idea. The book is just the wrapper for how the idea is going to spread. And what I've been thinking about for a long time is that the wrapper business changes faster than the idea business. So the wrapper of a book is going to go away really soon. But ideas are spreading further and faster than ever before. So as people who are interested in creativity and design, you need to think partly about your ideas and a lot about your wrapper. Because if you wrap your idea in something that can spread, it is more likely your idea will spread. And if your idea is one that demands to be talked about, it is way more likely it will be talked about. If an idea is easy to spread and is talked about, you win. And and the cool thing is I have never once met anyone who said to me, everyone who I care about knows about my idea, but I'm having trouble making a living. That never happens. So you don't worry about charging tickets for tickets. You worry about getting the idea to spread. And if you do that, the revenue will take care of itself. Okay, so the, the question has to do with how do we think about competition in the world of corporate politics where you know there's 10 people at GE and one of them has to get fired every year? And there's 15, that's the rule, and there's 15 15- <laughs> You're laughing. Jack Welch came up with this idea that you have to go, everyone in the middle management has to go to their boss and say, I have 10 people in my group, this is the bottom 10%, and that person's going to get fired. And that was part of the model that he built of this very cutthroat competitive environment, which is great for people who like that and for people who don't. Good for them to not work there anymore, right? And (laughs) I I happen to think it's not a place I'd want to work at all, and and it's changed quite a bit since he left. Um, But... You knew that going in, I hope. Now, all of that is based on the work that Henry Ford and other people did a really long time ago. And the model was a few people who make decisions and tens of thousands of people who do what they're told. And so if you look at the River Rouge plant that Ford had in Dearborn, there was you know, three or four people who would say, this is what the car is going to be. And then there's 5,000 people who are going to assemble it. Well, as that profits, you create middle management, what we're called pivot men. And the goal of a lot of people at the bottom, go-getters, was how do I get that job where I don't have to lift heavy objects, right? but where I just am the intermediary between people who are making decisions they can get blamed for and people who have to do the work. So we, that's where it was created. And it's built on scarcity that the entire model of the industrial economy is scarcity. Scarce shelf space, scarce resources, scarce middle manager jobs that pay really well. And so in that world, it is very much a zero-sum game because there's musical chairs. But in the connection economy, which is where we're going now, it's not about scarcity. It's about abundance. Because you can have as many connections as you can handle. And you can follow as many people as you want. And you can put as many ideas in the world as you want. These are all abundant principles that aren't based on scarcity. So where I think this is going is, people who go to work with a scarcity mindset, with the sharp elbows and trying to push their way in a game of musical chairs, are are chasing a dwindling resource. And some of them will get it, but more and more people won't. Because the number of great middle class jobs that are available keeps going down. But those who show up and say, wow, this is abundant. This is a platform a platform for me to do my art, a platform for me to take risks, a platform for me to make connections. And I'm probably not going to be working here in a year, but it's okay because the, the weaving I'm doing, the network I'm creating in the best sense of the word network, will create more value for everyone I touch. And if you are in the business of creating value for everyone you touch, you will never need to look for work for the rest of your life. But the people who play the scarcity game will always need a better resume to fight out the other guy. So the, the last part on this, um, and Tina will tell me when I have to stop. But the last part on this is, uh, back when I was running Yo-Yo Dine in like 98 or so, I was at Disney for a meeting. And this guy had a pile of paper on his desk this thick. And I said, what's that? He said, oh, those are resumes. These are all the people who want to come work for me at Disney. And it was a lousy division of Disney doing lousy work in lousy conditions. And it was literally this thick. And on my desk at Yo-Yo the number of graphic designers who had uh, replied to my last uh, thing, which was a full-page ad in the New York Times, was four. (laughs) And the reason was because in the scarcity mindset, that's a good job at a famous company with a brand name, where if you can follow instructions, you can get it. Whereas mine looked risky. It wasn't famous. You didn't know what it was going to blah, blah, blah. But the people who ended up with me, I can tell you what they've gone on to do. Really cool stuff. Because I'm a good client. I said, go ahead, do something that might not work. Go ahead, break some rules, let's see what will happen. And yeah, I'll even let you take credit if it works. But finding that, so back to where we started, is finding that niche for yourself isn't going to happen because you write a better resume. It's going to happen because you've orchestrated all the work you do to end up in that place at that time as the one and only person that they need to trust to do this building for them, this community organizing. Okay, so I don't think connecting is the way, the kind of connecting I'm talking about. I don't buy into the whole trading lunches thing of saying, I'll follow you if you'll follow me. Who's in your network? Who's in your network? How can I get known by people because I've been in their face, right? I don't collect business cards anymore. I don't even have a business card. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is when your work goes into the world and touches people, then... You are connected to them. Not because you showed up, but because your work showed up. It's the work product. So you know, I was connected to Tina long before I met her. And no one introduced me to her that I recall. She was just in the atmosphere. And then I saw the work, and I saw more of the work, and I saw more of the work. And I said, this is someone I feel a connection I would miss her if she was gone. And it's that idea of being missed is how we get past Dunbar's number. We can't figure out how to have more than 150 people who are likely to come to our funeral because they're our friends, but we can have way more than 150 people who would miss our work if we stopped making it. And that's what I'm talking about. So they're one and the same thing.
0: The next question is from an audience member who works with teenagers and is stuck not knowing how to handle students afraid to fail and therefore unwilling to share their art.
1: You know, there's a small answer and the bigger answer. Let me start with the bigger answer. I wrote a manifesto a year and a half ago called Stop Stealing Dreams. You can find it online. I wish every parent would read it, because if parents read it, they might ask better questions, like, what is school for, exactly? And maybe we wouldn't have this whole regime of number two pencils. Um, But setting that aside, you are one person. What I do when I teach is create an environment where not only is it safe to fail, it's required to fail. I make people more afraid of not failing than they are failing. And one of the things I talk about is if you are serious about creating innovation in your company and you run it, one thing you have to do is fire people on a regular basis for not innovating. Do you have to bring someone up in front of them and say this person made quota every year for the last five years, has never once had something failed, has never put anything into the world that didn't work? You're fired. Right? <laughs> and then you give the parking space of the month to the person who did something with the right intent that didn't work. If you do that a couple times, the whole organization gets the message, right? Whereas if you just say that, but then give the A's to the kids who get all the right answers, you're not serious. And when we can create these environments for bravery, these environments where people can stand up and say, I made this and it's not for you, but it is for you, then they're more likely to do it when they're adults. The cool thing is, we're giving all of you this playground to do this in, and some of you are kids compared to me, and you can. But what I can hear up here, like from my telepathetic skill, is you've got this whole dialogue in the back of your head saying, Well, it'll never work, and it's not my turn, and it's not, that's easy for him to say because he got in early and he knows GM, and that this person knows this person. It's not for me. This club is already closed. It's not, uh, no, that's not what is actually being said. What's being said is, I'm afraid that we're afraid to put work in the world that will connect to people. We're afraid to say, here, I made this. We're afraid to say, you know what, this isn't good enough, I better do it again. And that fear, overcoming it, that's our job, is to figure out how to raise the bar, not to copy the people we admire, but to become
0: the people we admire.
1: Thank you again, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: For more on the Backwards theme and to browse the Complete Creative Mornings Archive, you can go to creativemornings.com. As promised, I still have Seth on the phone here to revisit some of the points he made during this lecture. My first follow-up is in regards to his statement that we were all trained from the time that we're three to be workers who followed instructions, and that we're dealing with a, quote, regime of number two pencils, unquote. So I was curious, since this lecture took place almost three years ago, where he stands on this today.
1: Well, I'm seeing two things. The thing that's uh, disappointing is that the educational-industrial complex is doubling down, inventing new standardized tests, inventing new ways to get more debt in college. But at the same time, almost like the matrix, you watch people waking up who are saying, well, why wasn't I informed? And, oh, you mean I can do this? And shaking off this slimy substance that has been put on them for 18 or 20 years. And more and more people are now seeing it and and coming alive. And that feels to me like it's going to continue going in that direction for a while to come.
0: Can you expand a little bit on the awesome, and scary responsibility of saying, here it is, I made this, which then leads to the realization that our job isn't to make something for everyone, slash work that matters isn't work that's popular.
1: So we'll start with the first part, uh, which breaks into two. Uh, I made this is a very, very difficult thing for most people to say because we live in a culture where you're not supposed to own the thing, the bureaucracy is supposed to, and where you're supposed to not get criticized because that's one step away from getting fired, which is one step away from being dead. And so it's far more effective to say, well, this is still, I'm still working on this, or we as a committee stand behind this unless you don't like it, in which case we'll change, blah, blah, blah. Just to be able to say, I made this, is really difficult. And then the second half of that is, but it might not be for you. And as soon as we can forgive the recipient of our gift, forgive them for not appreciating it as much as we want them to, we are free to make better work. Because if you are engaged in advance without getting the feedback, imagining how much it's going to be hated and standing off the edges and standing off the edges to the point where there's nothing left, just so that no one will say, I don't like this, you have crippled yourself. And instead, what we have to say is we trust the market enough that the people who don't like it, don't like it. And the people who do, do. But We're not going to water it down in advance.
0: One last thing before you go. And for all the newcomers to this podcast, we like to end each episode with a question. This season, the question is, how do you challenge yourself creatively?
1: I think the biggest uh, shift was picking a different client. So if your client is a book editor, or your client is the reader, or your client is a B2B purchasing agent, or your client is the editor of Vogue, these are people you you seek to influence creatively. And if you feel like you're not being as creative as your muse wants you to be, it may make sense to think about who's your client, who you're trying to please. And for me, it's been very challenging, but productive for me to become my own client. And uh, I don't think I could have done that 20 years ago, but it's fascinating to do it now. Because in a world where anyone who wants to has a publish button, you actually are the client, and you need to think really deeply about what's worthy of having your name on
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time, Seth, and thank you for being our season two premiere.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for doing this. You didn't even ask me for an impromptu. Ready? I can do it backwards off the top of my head.
0: Amazing.
1: Have a good one. bye Bye.
0: For the record, we also want your answers to our season two question. How do you challenge yourself creatively So please record a voice memo of yourself and email it to podcast at creativemornings.com Next week we'll hear from Cindy Gallup, the founder of Make Love Not porn who dissects her groundbreaking website and the hurdles involved When today's total freedom of access to hardcore porn online meets our society's equally total reluctance to
1: talk openly and honestly about sex it's the convergence of both of those things. ...that results in porn becoming by default the sex education of today in not a good way.
0: It's an episode that tackles the all-too-easy-to-shy-away-from topic of sex, and Cindy Gallup takes no shortcuts. Our thanks to Seth Godin and everyone at Creative Mornings. This episode was produced and edited by S. Mateo with sound engineering, mixing, and original score by Devin C. Johnson... ...at Little Library Studios in collaboration with S. Matteo Music. This episode's rooster comes from a wonderful audience at the Creative Mornings New York City chapter... Follow us on Twitter at Creative Morning. Remember, it's singular. And use hashtag podcastCM when you tweet at us. For a complete archive of talks, or just to get involved, go to creativemornings.com. it. Thank you so much, everybody. <laughs>